You know, it's, um, it's important that we assemble like this and sing and worship the Lord, but it's equally important that in our daily lives, in our circumstances, around our family, those we go to school with, those we work with, that they see the difference. The world sees the difference in the way that we live, in the way that God gives us grace. And so I appreciate that in that song. Please take your Bibles if you have them today, and I hope you do, and turn to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be reading in a moment from Mark chapter 12. For those of you who are guests, we are on Sunday mornings, we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we finished chapter 11 uh, last week. And there in chapter 11, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders questioned Jesus about the source of his authority. Uh, where do you get this authority? I mean, he had been turning tables over in the temple area and driving money changers out of the temple because of the way they were being so disrespectful to that holy place. And so they said, where do you get your authority? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, where about John the Baptist? the forerunner of the Messiah, uh, did he, where did he get his authority? Did he come get it from heaven or did he get it from among men? And they deliberated for a while and tried to find the answer. They finally said, we don't know. And so Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer you then. And that began really a series of teachings. We'll look at one of them today. It's a parable and we'll find several of them. All of these taking place in the temple area after uh, this conversation we discussed last week. So if you're able to stand, please stand with us for the reading of the scripture. And I'm going to begin in verse 1 of Mark chapter 12. And we find these words. And he began to speak unto them by parables. And this is what he said. A certain man planted a vineyard and set an hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. So he's introducing a parable, this parable. A parable is, a, is generally a story that those who are hearing it uh, can identify with. This was very familiar to them, men in Israel uh, building vineyards. And so he's telling this story about a man who built a vineyard. And we're going to look at the details of this story in a moment. But let's go to the end of it and notice how it ends. And that'll help us kind of uh, relate as we go through these passages. Look in verse 12. He says, And they sought to lay hold on him. Mark chapter 12 and verse 12. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. So there were those who heard him that were mad enough to kill him. The only thing that held them back was they knew that the people feared him. So they sought to lay hold on him in verse 12. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. They knew this parable was not about someone else. They knew this parable was about them. And they left him and went their way. You may be seated. Thank you for standing in honor of the word of God. So his critics, not everyone maybe who heard him, 
give this parable that we're about to go through. But his critics knew that it pertained to them. It was about them. They, they wanted him dead. Now let's go through the parable and let's um, look at some of the details, if we could, in this parable beginning in the first verse again. We're in, for those of you joining us, we're in Mark chapter 12. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it. So this man, a certain man in this parable, he built this vineyard, a place where grapes will be grown, and he put a hedge around it. That's to protect it. The Bible says in verse 1, he also digged a place for the wine fat. You know, in a typical vineyard, there would be a place, uh, the wine press, where the grapes would be squeezed and the juice would come out of the grapes at the wine press. It would go down into a lower area and that would be where the fruit, the fruit, the juice really would be uh, collected and so he built it. So he says there in verse 1, he digged a, this uh, wine fat, he built a tower, that's to protect it, to overlook it, make sure everything is safe. And then it says, he let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. So this man in the parable, he, he placed the vineyard in the charge. And the word in our Bible is husbandman. And uh, they're going to manage the property. The phrase in our Bible there it says it let it out. That means they farmed it out. They leased it out. Now this is a very common practice in Bible days. By the way, it's a common practice now. If someone had a piece of ground, some property, and they weren't going to farm it themselves, they might allow someone else to farm it. Let's just say you had some acreage, you had some, some uh, uh, grass, some fertile grass, some, soil, uh, some grass that could produce hay, and you'd say to someone, look, if you'd like to, you can come and cut this hay and bale it, and at the end of the season, you take part of it, I'll take part of it. It's called sharecropping. And that's really what was happening in this passage here, there was a man who had this vineyard and he didn't going to take care of it himself. He turned it over to husbandmen and they're going to manage that property. And uh, they're called tenant farmers. Sure, generally they would live there and they would agree upon a certain share. The landowner is going to get a certain share. And if you don't get this, you won't understand the parable. And those who did the work and managing the property, they would get a certain share. And the Bible says, the last part of verse 1, that this, this owner, this landowner, this man, went into a far country. So he left. And so he's going to be gone for a while. Doesn't tell us how long he was going to be gone. But again, he employed these husbandmen, and he left them to manage it. We don't know how long the vineyard had been there. I was thinking about this. If the man had just planted the vineyard and left and went away for a while to a far country and left these people there to watch the vineyard and tend to it, he may have been gone for years because it would take years for this newly planted vineyard to begin to produce fruit. We don't know that. It's not necessarily important. But one day they, these, this owner would come back and these tenant farmers would give him a part of the produce and they would take a part of the produce. He goes to a far country. Verse 2. And at the season. And the season is obviously the season of harvest. The season when the fruit would be ready. At the season, he, the owner, sent to the husbandman a servant. 
that he might, the servant might, receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. So it's very clear what is happening here. And uh, look, if you would, please, in verse 3, it says, And they, talking about the husbandman, they caught him, the servant, and beat him, and sent him away empty. You get the picture? This man who owns the property, he's got these people maintaining it. He's expecting when, they, when the servant comes, he's going to say, well, here's some money. We sold some of the cash crop, or maybe we're going to give you some of the fruit of the, of the harvest. But instead, it says in verse 3 that they caught this man and beat him and sent him away empty. That's not the way it's supposed to go. I mean, if you... If you were a landowner and you lent at least out some of your property for someone to maintain for you and you came back to get your portion, you don't expect them to beat your representative up and send him away, but that's exactly what happened. Verse 4 tells us, again he sent unto them another servant and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and send him away shamefully handled. So this, he sends a second servant. Maybe they'll treat him better. Maybe they, had a, maybe they were having a bad day. They weren't in a good mood. They're, I'll send another servant. But they, they stoned him. They beat his head in, probably with rocks. I mean, how selfish could these people be? They're living on someone else's property. They're, they're farming someone else's property. And when the owner sends somebody to check on it, they beat him up. They're thugs. So verse 5, if we read a little further, it says, And again, he sent another one. This is the third one. They didn't treat him any better, it says, And him they killed. They killed this man. In Matthew 21, Matthew writes about this same parable. Matthew 21 says, They stoned him to death. Now, this is bizarre behavior, right? This is, this is unbelievable behavior. Each servant who came from the owner to check on the produce, each one is met with more severe attacks. Now, just think with me for a moment. Imagine, imagine that you're listening to Jesus tell this story this parable and he's telling you about this owner and these people who are listening to him can easily relate to what's taking place and he's telling you about this man who owns his property and he sends one person back and they they're mistreated sends another one back they throw rocks at him and and bash his head in send another one back and they they killed him and uh, this is just a horrible story and you're listening to this and what, what would you have been thinking if you're listening to this parable? I think they're familiar with this practice. They knew how it worked. And I'm sure they're growing in anger. Wouldn't you think they're growing in anger about the way this guy's mis, or these husbandmen are mistreating these servants that are coming to them? The last part of verse 5, look at that. It says, and they killed the third guy in verse 5. And, notice this, the middle of verse 5. And many others. He didn't just send three. He sent many others. 
And what did, what did they do to them? They, they beat some of them and they killed some of them. Many others. Now as we're reading this, or as they were listening to this, we're learning things about the characters in this story, right? We're learning some things about the people, the main characters. We're, we, we learned something about the husbandmen. They were ruthless. I mean, as I said, they were thugs. They were, un, they were ungrateful. They're, they're, they're farming another man's property. We're learning some things about the landowner. He was extremely patient, wouldn't you say? Over the top, over the top with long-suffering. And I'm thinking the listeners might have been thinking, what is this man, what is this owner doing? Why does he keep sending these people? Why is he sending his servants and they're beating them and killing them and mistreating them? Well, it only gets worse. Verse 6. Having yet therefore one son, this owner had one son, his well-beloved. He sent him also last unto them, saying, they will reverence my son. Now, if I was listening to this story, like so all these other people, we don't have many, there were many, many people, could have been hundreds, maybe even thousands. I'd be saying, no way, don't send your son down there. Look what they did to your servants. He only had one son. But you know what he said? They're going to reverence my son. They're going to respect my son. Surely they will respect my only son. Verse 7. But those husbandmen, when his son arrived, said among themselves... This is the heir. They knew who he was. Come. Not respect him. Let us kill him. And the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What a story. What an amazing story. They killed the only son. And then notice what how Jesus then begins to explain and apply, if you would please, in verse 9. Then Jesus asked a question. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? What, what is the owner, the landowner, the man who planted the vineyard, he asked the question to these listeners. What do you think he's going to do? To do. What do you think he might do? Let me ask you a question. What would you do? I would put together a formidable army. And I would destroy everyone either directly or indirectly linked to the abuse of my servants, the killing of my son. Now you may not have done that. You may have you know, said, would you like a cup of tea, you know, or something. I wouldn't look at it like that. Notice the second part of verse 9. After he asked, what shall therefore the, son, the, the Lord of the vineyard do? We find these words, verse 9. He will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. 
Now, as I'm reading verse 9, and you're reading it with me, there's something to me in verse 9 that's not clear. And that something is this. Who answered the question? Let's look at the question again, verse 9. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman and give the So who answered that? Did Jesus answer that question himself? Or did those who listened answer that question? In the Bible there in verse 9, it's not really clear. But it is clear in another passage. Because in Matthew 21, this is what it says. When Jesus said, what shall the Lord of the vineyard do? This is what Matthew 21, 14 says. They said unto him, they said to Jesus, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. Now that's important to know who said that. And there's no doubt who said it. The people who listened to him said he's going to come and destroy those wicked men. That's what they said. That's what the listeners said. Some of them were critics and enemies of Jesus. The words of the listeners. He's going to destroy them. And it makes sense, right? There's no way their behavior should be allowed to continue. And the last part of verse 9 is a key part too. It says, and will give the vineyard unto others. So there's the parable. There's the parable, and you and I have heard it just as the listeners heard it. Now, let's look at this parable, and many of you are very familiar with it, and some of you may not be at all familiar with it, but let's just look at it and see who these different parties in the parable represent. First of all, the landowner. It's very clear that the, in the parable, the landowner is God. He planted the vineyard. He owns the vineyard. The vineyard belongs to Almighty. He belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. Okay, the vineyard itself. What does the vineyard represent in the parable? Who does the vineyard represent? And I'm going to tell you who it represents, and I want to show it to you in the Bible. It represents Israel. The vineyard represents Israel. Now, we're going to go to another passage, but don't move your hand from Mark chapter 12 because we'll be right back. But let's go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Give you just a moment to find that. The first of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, give you another moment to find it. I love to hear the pages of the Bible turning. We're people of the book, right? We bring our Bibles. Verse 1, Isaiah writes, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. You'll see, you'll see the point. Verse 1. Now will I sing to my beloved, my well-beloved, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem o men, and men of Judah, Judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, God is speaking. 
Judge between me and my vineyard. I'm just going to skip down to verse 7 to make sure we understand the point. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of what? Israel. These Jews standing in the crowd listening to Jesus tell this parable. They're very familiar with Isaiah chapter 5. I'm sure they're thinking about it. The words were almost identical. He built a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He put a tower in it. He made a wine press. And this vineyard is the house of Israel and it did not produce the fruit that he wanted it to produce. Now let's go back if we could to Mark chapter 12 because we're looking at the parties in this parable. First of all, who is the landowner? It's God. Who is the vineyard? The vineyard is the nation of Israel. And... Uh, and by the way, this, if you think about what's, what's taking place, and I know some of you haven't been with us for recent weeks, but we're only a, a matter of hours at this point from Jesus being crucified on the cross. And the people who will give him up to be crucified are in that congregation, and he is in their face telling them this parable about God and his relationship to Israel. So the landowner is God, the vineyard is Israel. Thirdly, who are the husbandmen? And the husbandmen, and if, and if the, and if the um, vine is Israel, who was it that was responsible for the stewardship of this great relationship that God had with these people? And it was these Jewish teachers and leaders. They were responsible for maintaining God's testimony. They were responsible for maintaining God's truth. The priests are the teachers. Now this may not seem important to you, but these teachers who ought to be the priests, the teachers, are corrupt. They're evil. They're, and we've been looking at this week after week. They're hypocrites. They're, they're vengeful people. They're arrogant. And what he's saying is these, hus these are the husbandmen. They were to be stewards of God's truth. The Jewish leaders did not own the temple and the sacrifices. They were only tenant farmers managing what belongs to God. That's the message of the parable. They were proud and they were possessive. They wanted control. As I said the other day, they're part of the swamp. Look, if you would, please, in Mark chapter 12 and verse 7, it says, Those husbandmen said among themselves, in this parable, these husbandmen said among themselves, they're, they're confederating among themselves and conspiring among themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him. Well, if, if you look in chapter 11, where we covered a week ago, Notice what it says in verse 31. And they reasoned among themselves. These are those crooks, these scandals. These, these are the people that are corruptly controlling what goes on in the temple. They conspired among themselves. Now notice what it says in Mark chapter 12 and verse 9. This is what these people in the crowd said to Jesus when he said, What would the Lord do? They said... He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. 
One of these days, he says, the owner's going to come and destroy the husbandmen. Who are they? They're the leaders of Israel. And by the way, you know this if you've been listening for the last several weeks. Just a few years after this, a few decades maybe, in 70 A.D., in 70 A.D., God's vengeance was poured out upon Israel in a way that we can hardly imagine. Josephus, who lived in the first century, he wrote about that massacre by the Romans. And more than one source will tell you this, that when, Jer when Israel was destroyed, over 900 villages were destroyed and over a million people lost their lives. Now just put that into your mind for a moment. You know who said this? You know who said the owner ought to come and destroy the husbandman? Who said that? The husbandman said that. They were basically saying, we deserve to be killed, and they were killed. And by the way, we've been to, we've been to Jerusalem, to Israel twice, and the, the rubble from what happened in 70 A.D. is still visible in Israel, and the temple has never been rebuilt. So it says in verse 9, What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? They said, He will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. Now, that's interesting. Who were the others that the vineyard would be given to? And the answer to that is very simple. It was the vineyard, the custodian... The, being the custodian of God's truth, God's revelation was, not, was taken away from the nation of Israel and it was given to the apostles. And, it was, and, and, not, and those who would build churches after them, it was given to the churches. Who's, who is now, according to the Bible, who is the pillar and ground of truth? It's New Testament churches. So this par I think this is one of the most fascinating parables in the Bible. It's just amazing how much is in there. So we've looked at the landowner, we've looked at the vineyard, we've looked at the husbandman, the husband or the priest, the Jewish leaders. But who are the servants? They sent one servant, they got beat up. Sent another servant, they bashed their head in with rocks. Sent a third servant, they killed him. And then Jesus said in this parable, they, he, this landowner sent many servants. And what did they do to them? Verse 5 he says, Beating some and killing some. It's clear when you think about it, the servants are prophets. They're the prophets that God sent to his people over and over and over again to warn his people. And all you have to do is just read the Old Testament and you see the repeated persecution of these servants sent by God to Israel to bring them to repentance, one after another after another. And you know what they did for the most part? We were just, my wife and I have been reading in Jeremiah, some of you have as well. What happened? They rejected them, they mistreated them, they beat them, they killed these prophets. I mean, reading Jeremiah, they put him in a dungeon, they mocked them, they ridiculed them. We have a grandson named Micaiah, named after one of the prophets in the Old Testament. You know, what, you know what they did to Micaiah when he stood up, when all the other false prophets 
were announcing lies. Micaiah stole the truth. They beat him in the face. That's how Israel treated the prophets. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, Blessed are they that do mourn and blessed are the peacemakers and that sort of thing? Jesus said, Blessed are they that are persecuted for my name's sake. They will be rewarded for so treated they the prophets. The pro- Jesus said, These, my people have regularly, continually mistreated the prophets. There was a man in 2 Chronicles by the name of Zechariah. He was stoned to death. We don't know how these prophets died. Tradition says that Isaiah, we read from Isaiah 5, tradition says, and it was written about in the first century, that Isaiah was sewn in two with a wooden saw. Imagine that. That's how they treated the prophets. Now sometimes we forget about that, but this is serious stuff. Jesus is about to be killed by these same people, and he tells them this story and says, this is what your people have been guilty of. This is what the husband, I sent them, I, the owner sent, sent servant after servant to these people, and all they did was mistreat them. So we've looked at the landowner, we've looked at the vineyard, we've looked at the husbandman, we've looked at the servants, and then finally, we look at the son. Who was this son? This landowner sent. He only had one son, the beloved son. And when they rejected all the prophets, finally he sent his son. He said, surely they'll, rever- they'll reverence my son. You know who the son was? The son is the one giving the parable. And by the way, it would be this claim that would result in the Jewish leaders turning Jesus over to be crucified, the claim of blasphemy, because he claimed to be the very son of God. And Jesus has given it to him straight up. He... He loved you so much. He was so patient to you. He sent one prophet after another, after another, after another, and finally he sent his own son. And you know what? While he's telling them, they, they, the man in the parable, the people in the parable killed his only son. He's looking at people who at that very moment are conspiring to kill him. And it'll happen in a matter of moments. Jesus then... If you go back to our text in Mark chapter 12, Jesus said in verse 10, this is a part of this dialogue after the parable is given. Verse 10, Jesus said, have not you read this scripture? Now you've got to keep in mind You know, a lot of times we can hear a scripture from the Old Testament. We may not think about it. We may not remember it. It doesn't bring any recollection to us. But these Jewish people, they knew their Old Testament. They knew the law. So when Jesus said, have you not read this scripture? And he begins a quote. The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now why would he say that? Why would Jesus say when he's telling them about how 
the only son of the landowner would be killed because he because he, they rejected all of these servants they were really re, they weren't just rejecting the servants they were rejecting the landowner and when the only son came they rejected the son and he says if you never read and by the way it's a quote from Psalm 118 the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner the chief cornerstone now I'm not going to turn to it for time's sake but these these Jewish people were very familiar with this Psalm 118 but there's one other thing in Psalm 118 that I think was registering with them because another verse in that same Psalm says this blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord that's the very words that were being shouted by the crowd when Jesus, a few days earlier, makes his entrance into Jerusalem. A quote from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he pulls from that same psalm this quote. Can't you remember the, per, the, the stone that the builders rejected? These Jewish people, they were responsible for the nation of Israel, the custodianship of God's truth. God gave the oracles of God to them. But he's saying, looking at them eyeball to eyeball, he's saying, the very stone that you reject will become the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone. He's talking about himself. And he goes, and, and that part of quoted from 118 says, This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, it's a great parable. But to wrap it up, let's think about how they responded to it. Look in verse 12. And they sought to lay hold on him. We read this earlier. They wanted to kill him, they wanted him dead, they wanted to apprehend him. But they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. They knew he was talking about them. They weren't in, you know, we might read that and not really understand it completely. They understood it completely. They knew exactly how this parable was being given to them. And it says, they left him in verse 11 and went away. You know why? Because they, the husband, they are the husbandmen. Just like the husbandman killed the prophets and killed the son, these religious leaders are going to kill the son. They just simply left. Now, for me, I don't know how it is for you, but for me, there's a lot to take in in this parable. And I want to just kind of summarize some key points. Number one, Jesus used this parable to reveal the hypocrites to themselves. He wanted to clearly expose them for what they were. He was exposing their hypocrisy and their evil. They had this reputation. They wanted to maintain this reputation that they were religious and they were good people, but they were prideful and they were harsh and they were evil husbandmen. They had been guilty of persecuting the prophets in the past all through the centuries and they're not going to change you know one thing we can learn from the Pharisees you said they couldn't teach us anything here's something they could teach us 
And that is the powerful and destructive nature of hypocrisy. Of acting like you're one thing when you're entirely something else. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted to be revealed about them. So he showed their own hypocrisy to themselves. Second of all, he showed himself to them, who he really was. Now Jesus never claimed um, to be anything other than what he was. And he never kept his identity concealed. Many times, if you're familiar with the Gospels, many times, Jesus said that he came from the Father. He and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he is revealing himself in these words in a way that cannot be denied. He knew they were going to kill him. But he also knew that he would raise from the dead and be the, the stone which the builders rejected would become the head of the corner. So he wanted to show himself to them who he really was. And they knew that. Thirdly, I want to say in this parable, he wanted to show himself to us. You know, one of the most powerful parts of this parable is the love of the owner who would send his only son to a group of people who had rejected one after another, after another, after another, after another, many prophets beating them, torturing them, killing them. We see the love of God that he sent his only son into a world that would hate him. And by the way, he didn't just do that for the Jews. He did that for us. And we see the sacrifice of the son. Some, I know some people may never think about this. But none of this surprised Jesus. He wasn't surprised when the enemies turned against him. He knew it was going to happen. He told his disciples time after time after time, when we get to Jerusalem, it's going to get ugly. I'm paraphrasing, of course. They're going to kill me. And he said, he said who would be? The chief priests, the elders, they're going to kill me. What a sacrifice. And he is the chief cornerstone. He's the stone that the builders rejected. But he is the stone upon which we build. He's the stone upon which we build our lives. He's the stone upon which churches are built. He is the chief cornerstone. Many today reject the stone. They don't like Jesus. These people didn't like Jesus. They didn't like the way he did things. They didn't like the things he said. There are a lot of people like that today. They reject the stone, but the stone which the builders rejected is the chief cornerstone. They killed him, but three days later he raised from the dead. Thank God for that. So he, in this parable, he shows the hypocrites to be who they were. And he shows himself to them to be who he was. And he shows himself to us as he is. And it's not as critical, I don't think, to this, but it's, it's also important. Everything in the Bible is important. I believe he shows ourself to us. And that phrase where it says that God the owner is going to take the stewardship of his work from those wicked husbandmen and he's going to turn it over to another. We are the other. Amen. I'm not saying we're Israel. We're not Israel. But we are the custodians of his truth. 
I'm talking about we as Bible-believing Christians. We as New Testament churches. We are the custodians of his truth. He gave that to us, that responsibility to us. And we are the propagators of his truth. He gave us the responsibility. By the way, you may not have noticed this, but you read the Old Testament. God didn't just give the truth to the Jews. He told them to take that truth to the world. And they sabotaged it. They disrespected it, sacrileged God's work. But you know who's given that responsibility to us? He's given it to, now it's to us. We're to preach the gospel to every creature. We're to take the gospel to every nation. So I could look at them on one hand and say, shame on you. You blew it. You forfeited your chance. And that's true. But what are we doing with our opportunity? Are we taking the gospel? Are we taking the gospel to other people? God didn't give the gospel to the Jews so they could just keep it to themselves. And he didn't give the gospel to us that we could just keep it to ourselves. He gave it to us that we might give it to others. The stone which the builders rejected. I find myself many, many times as a Christian, as a Bible believer, as a person who reads and studies the Bible, I find myself many times thinking, boy, I would love to have been there. I'd love to have been in that crowd to see the look on their faces. And that's one of those places that I hope has been recorded for us in heaven. That we just pull up a chair somewhere and bag of popcorn. Put the tape into our VHS recorder and watch it. One of the great, to me, one of the great, great moments. And every time I think about it and every time I say it, I, I think about what Jesus had on his mind at this moment. Within hours, he'll be hanging on the cross for us. And he reminded them about his great love, but he also reminded them about their great evil. And you know what? Nothing in this story, nothing in the text, nothing indicates that any of them repented and said, shame on us. They were, they were riveted, stuck on their agenda, which was not God's agenda. May God help us not be there. Amen? And you may be here today, and you don't even know what it means to have a relationship with God, a real relationship where you know him and you know your sins are forgiven, you know heaven is your home. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. He didn't die just to create another religion or a movement. He died to bring eternal salvation, forgiveness of sin, a cleansing made right with God. The only way that any man or woman is ever made right with God is not through good works or religion. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why he died. You said, what an injustice. What an injustice that they would crucify the Son of God, God in the flesh. Why would they do that? Because that's the price that had to be paid for you and I to be saved, to be forgiven, to know God as our Father. And if you're here today and you don't know him right where you are, you could trust him. You could say, I want to know you. I want to put my faith and trust in you. And you know what? The God... The God who just kept sending servant after servant after servant and finally his son, that same God is merciful and forgiving enough that he will forgive and save all who come to him.
Aren't you glad about that today? Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, I want to pray. With our heads bowed today and our eyes closed, would you think about this parable today? Would you think about what it means? What does it mean to you? Do you you know in your heart today that this son, this only beloved son that the father sent who represents Jesus Christ, do you know that today you have received him as your savior? If not today, you need him. Maybe today, even as a child of God, someone who's saved, you, you can look at this parable, see the hypocrisy of these religious people. And you know, it ought to be a reminder to all of us, that's not what we want to be. We're not hypocrites. We're not play actors. It's real. This is a real relationship with God. Our Father, as we pray today, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for giving your word by divine inspiration, word for word, as you'd have us to have it before us. And thank you, Father, for preserving it for us. And thank you for such a powerful illustration of what you've done for us. An illustration of those who've rejected you and turned from you and disrespected you. An image, a picture of your persistent love that you would eventually send your only son whom they would also kill. But we thank you, Lord, for the mercy that we see in you. We thank you for the mercy we've experienced in our lives. And it is important that we remember today, Father, that you've given us the responsibility to take your truth to the world, the life-changing message of the gospel. Help us to take it seriously. 